0: My name's Kat Stein, and this is Voices Up. As Black Lives Matter protests continue and the fight for social and systemic change rages on, we are so moved by all of the work that is being done by young people. This week, we had the chance to talk with Danielle Bonilla, an inspiring, eloquent young woman who is the first person from her family to graduate from college and plans to continue on to law school. Danielle comes from a mixed race family, which in some ways has inspired her goal to fight for racial equality and justice.
1: My name is Beniel Bonilla. I myself am Latina. I'm 22 years old. I just graduated from the University of Oregon. I've moved around quite frequently throughout my life, but I uh, was born in San Jose, California.
2: Would you mind walking us through where
1: have you lived since then? I lived in San Jose, California for the first six years of my life. Then my parents got divorced So we popped and lived in Oregon for less than a year. And then we were in New Mexico for about five years. And then I lived in Southern Oregon after my mom moved back to Oregon. That is a lot of moving. Which town in Southern Oregon? Central Point, Oregon. Now I'm in Eugene, just finishing up at the University of Oregon. Congrats on graduating. And it's been a really, really long four years. What did you study? My major was in ethnic studies with a minor in international studies and Spanish.
2: What did you hope to do or to become?
1: Ultimately working in social justice, racial justice work. Now the current goal is to continue on to law school, to focus in civil liberties law, working with cases of racial discrimination, um, protecting protesters, which now is uh, very relevant. Do so you know which law school you want to go to? The University of Washington in Seattle has a really good law school. I believe they have like a race and justice law track. I think that it is a perfect match.
2: Didn't you have
1: an internship too in Eugene before the pandemic hit? I was volunteering at the Civil Liberties Defense Center, which is a law firm in Eugene that focuses on protecting protesters or individuals who do direct action sadly, I'd only been there for a couple of weeks before COVID had cut that opportunity. I hope to find a similar position to get into law offices and see how they function.
2: We live in a very, very white part of Oregon, Eugene. The population of white people is 84.5% the Black population is less than 2%, yeah. and we've just graduated from one of the widest universities in America. What has your experience been as a Latina here versus from New Mexico or San Jose or Southern Oregon?
1: So living in Southern Oregon beforehand, Southern Oregon definitely is even wider than Eugene. And so I definitely personally had a lot more experiences of overt racism in Southern Oregon than I have had in Eugene. But I think Eugene, as a college town, there's definitely a perception of more racial inclusivity and acceptance. And I think that's kind of a a generalized perception that Oregon has in general. But being a student here in Eugene and working with the local NAACP chapter, racism is still really present versus states like New Mexico and San Jose. The difference is the different community safety nets. When you live, at least in my experience, predominantly with other Latino communities, racism came from more of a institutional level than versus Interpersonal racism.
2: And Eugene, there's a general amnesia of racism doesn't really happen here. We're a very v- woke, liberal town. In, yes. And under the guise of being POC friendly. But it's really not. Correct. That's actually spot on. So it was more overt in Southern Oregon.
1: Than in Eugene. Yeah, it was more definitely overt in Southern Oregon. There's a way in Eugene, from my experience, in which working in racial justice work, uplifting communities of color in Eugene, in many ways becomes overshadowed by, by whiteness, essentially.
2: You mean like in race conversations, rather than focusing on the racism and the people of color, it gets shifted onto white guilt and the white partakers of the conversation?
1: Yeah, and giving so much space that it takes away from the the work that's being done. Because oftentimes, like from my experience, a lot of it is having to console white fragility instead of tackling issues. I can actually give a good example of this. At the University of Oregon, a lot of talks happen where the multicultural center or the law center, they'll bring in professionals to give talks and to talk about their work. But one of them was a prosecutor working on alternative forms of justice. And another man was discussing immigration reform. In both of these talks at the university, these talks are free to not only to students, but the general public. For the general public side, it's often predominantly white. I ended up stopped going to them after my sophomore year because every discussion resulted in the white general public going to the discussion and questions section of the form, and all of the questions were uh, centered around like their white fragility, their uh, their guilt. What can they do? Which is which is not inherently a wrong thing to to ask about or want to know. Like that's what we want from white people is to step up and, and learn, but there comes a point when it's overshadowing the, the opportunity or the work for people of color. Specifically at the prosecutor's talk, he brought attention to the room that there were only a handful of students of color in the room and that the line for questions and answers was all older white community members. One woman in particular was crying during her question and answering section, which also happened quite frequently at these talks. There's a way that this takes up space and opportunity, especially for when these situations such as incarceration, immigration, are very important and personal to a lot of people of color and their lives. They're coming from a place of good intention, but not reflecting how, like, how they're interacting with communities of color in these specific situations and how they're taking away um, and not allowing space for students or community members of color to give their questions to partake partake in these conversations.
2: You really hit the nail on the head with that. I went to a couple of those talks and you really described what happened. There was always a majority of white questioners and there's always, without fail, a couple of Uh, White audience members crying into the microphone about the injustices that were being dealt with, and those who the injustices were pointed towards had to console the
1: white guilt. Having that dialogue with individuals who are doing this kind of social work, very important work, it just wasn't a possibility think it's like a really telling example of how even for white people even in like their best intentions of how can I be of help what can I do this overwhelming white guilt like how that still kind of taking the conversation away from from focusing on justice for people of color back to how can I appease my own individual white guilt
2: what do you think is the best way for white folk to help during these sorts of conversations and especially during what's going on right now But the whole Black Lives Matter protest and everything that's going on.
1: I think right now the best thing that white people can do is to listen, but also know when to act independently, especially thinking about like municipal governments or institutions. What I see in a good white ally, especially in a state like Oregon, where it is dominantly white, there just isn't enough people of color to be there all the time in every situation to either to defend themselves or to be represented. It's like a really fine line between listening
2: and uplifting people of color's voices, but when there aren't people of color around to take it upon themselves to do the work within what would be wanted.
1: But also like having the flexibility to recognize that when people of color are in the picture, to look and listen to their direction and leadership.
2: There was a video where a black woman organized a peaceful protest and these white people overtook it and they started breaking the windows of the five guys in T-Mobile store that was nearby. And there's a video of the black woman who organized it shouting at them, please stop. This is what we don't want. But Mm. the white looters blatantly ignoring her and smashing things and burning a large bonfire in the middle of the street.
1: Cause this is part of like a larger just conversation of, about looting and rioting and how, and in a lot of ways that that is used to denounce these political movements. And I think that especially for, for white people turning to black leadership, both on, um, older and younger, because this was kind of a point of contention at the NAACP. Do, does the NAACP make a public statement condoning or not condoning the destruction of property in Eugene? Even within like these communities dealing with racial justice work, there still isn't equal opinions on how things should be done. So I think for white people, ultimately turning to Black leadership, both old and young, I think is above all the most important Especially if this was someone leading a peaceful protest who is now desperately trying to get them to stop. That's not turning to that local black leadership.
2: Yeah, I viewed that as a metaphor for Eugene, where brown folk are trying to speak about their experiences, but then white guilt takes over and they just do their own thing in the name of the brown bodies. I want to talk about the NAACP and what you've done there. So you've been a youth
1: coordinator for the NAACP for how long? I, um, for two years. I was the youth program coordinator for the back to school stay in school program at the Eugene NAACP chapter. The back to school stay in school program is geared towards middle school, high school, mostly high school though this past year. Students of color to receive tutoring and post high school counseling and mentorship. So I ran two sites, Overlook Volunteers, do outreach to the community, working with Black Student Union uh, high school navigators, reaching out to kids, organizing events for them. We did a lot, (laughs) honestly.
2: What's the, the benefits of targeting Black youth in this community?
1: What's really interesting about Eugene's demographic for students of color is that a lot of these families are mixed race multiracial families. The most common is Latino or Black students having white mothers. A lot of these students are really unsure about their racial identity as a as a result of coming from mixed race households. And so I think another poignant part that our education section tries to emphasize is bringing in uh, Black mixed race students and allowing them to, to recognize themselves as being Black as well. Like a lot of students struggle with that. That is part of like a larger discourse, like what does racial identity mean? What is ethnicity? But when you're young, especially growing up in Eugene, which is dominantly white, and I could see that it's very, it's very easy to be like, where do I stand in all of this as a mixed race individual? two other projects that I've worked on is Black Gold Culture Camp, where we take 13 middle school students and we go uh, essentially just staying out in cabins and doing like workshops and stuff for these students. And, and a lot of those students that we had last year at Black Gold C- Culture Camp were came from mixed race homes. And then we also have the African uh, AXO It's a national competition put on by the NAACP where Black students can come and compete. They have to be paired with um, community mentors.
2: What was it like working there as a Latina? It
1: was it was really good. I think the Latino and the the Black community, like our like the way we experience uh, oppression, is definitely is not the same and very different. But the systems of oppression is very similar, and so I think that. Latino and Black allyship is very, is really important and working with the NAACP and the different coalitions and organizations and partnerships was, it was great, especially like as people of color to recognize like that this is a joint effort and that community development and uplifting for Black, Latino, Native American and Asian communities is is a joint effort.
2: I want to go back around to what we were talking about before about mixed families So your parents divorced when you were six, and then you and your mom moved to New Mexico. So you were predominantly raised by a white mom, but I think you've said that you still had contact with other members of your Mexican family. So how did that shape your identity as a Latina?
1: In terms of working with the mixed race students here in Eugene, I definitely connect a lot in that regard. My dad was Mexican. I never not saw myself as as Mexican. I thought if that makes sense. So what's different from maybe from students here is growing up in San Jose and then New Mexico and living in dominantly Latino communities is I always felt a part of these communities. And so even though I didn't, I no longer lived with my dad, my grandfather, my vipa and my uncles, they always wrote to me. And we still write to this day, which is kind of funny because I feel like letters are obsolete. But um, they (laughs) But we still write to each other this day, to this day, in Spanish. Um, so, gro- like being a part of these communities. I was very aware of my racial identity, but moving to Oregon was really rough because not so much that it challenged like my idea of of myself, but if you don't know about Southern Oregon, it's um, predominantly why I think I was one of like five Latino students in my high school. My close friend at the time was the only black student. The general racism from the general white student population was really hard to deal with. My first year, like I definitely let like a lot of things people said slide. The situation being like a minority in a dominant school, like how much do you want to shake the boat Mm -hmm. (laughs) at your your own expense?
2: So coming from a mixed background, you have white and Mexican family members. And What have been their responses to this and I guess your responses to that during Black Lives Matter?
1: <laughs> so um, with my white family, I'm not seen as Latino to them, I presume, because they have no qualms about being quite racist. So that in and it of itself is a whole issue. I'm I'm kind of a pessimist by nature. Like I try not to get too hopeful and obviously change happens slowly and incrementally, but I'm excited and happy that things are, things are happening and that the things are happening by, by the work and labor of people taking direct action and not just relying on the, the government, both local and larger to do it for them. So I think, like a big example, being like the whole uh, situation with Confederate statues, and for a long time, different organizations have been petitioning to have Confederate statues removed. People are are done um, are done asking, and they're taking it upon themselves to to tear them down and throw them into whatever body of water they see fit. Cities like Minneapolis are. Looking to reconfigure the policing situation there. Um, here in Eugene, there's a, a lot of talk and petition around um, re, reconfiguring the funding for the Eugene Police Department and and doing other work like that. So it's really frustrating that it it requires Black people to die for things to happen. But I'm glad that it's not in vain in that even even no matter how incremental it is it seems like a step forward
2: Danielle this is a this is a really private question which you definitely don't have to answer if you don't want to but what was it like growing up in a family where one whole side of it was demonstrating hatred towards you
1: when we moved back to Oregon I've always lived with my grandmother and my mom, all my so all my white family essentially lives in Southern Oregon. It was really rough, and it's I think it's really sad because I don't to this day have a good relation, like like a like a solid relationship with most of my mom's family. Resultantly, like um, growing up, I've always been super air quotes here political, but but when it's your life and experiences you had, like how is my experience of racism, political, you know, I just stopped talking because when I, when I was younger, I was into having these conversations, talking with my mom, wanting like, well, what, what's up with it? Like a, a really good instance is actually when Michael Brown, um, when that situation happened, um, talking, you know, with my family about that immediately just shut down, um, in fact, I think I was put to tears by them because they just were so angry that I was not for their views or that I thought that Michael Brown was a victim. So I just didn't say anything and I still don't like I just don't say a thing. It's easier sometimes to just be quiet and not talk at all than having to like constantly deal with the, the backlash, especially when it's like your mom and your grandma who live with you. You know, and and it's sad because I feel like I was robbed and they're robbed of having like real conversations and relationships. Like it, it really hurts me that they can speak really poorly about immigrants, about Mexicans, about like about all these social issues that that are very important to me and my own dad's family has experienced. And I guess that comes at the expense of our relationship. So I'm an adult now and I choose to not. I mean, I choose to not. I, yeah.
2: <laughs> that was a really tough question to answer, but I think you summed up a whole lot of really eloquent thoughts really well.
1: It's rough, but at, at the end of the day, even though I don't talk to them about these issues anymore, it's it's the actions that I put forward that really matter. Yeah, it is so you're dumb. gonna go to law school. <laughs> yeah, as much as they hate it. I couldn't even tell my mom, like my, my major was ethnic studies because that's apparently too, that's too controversial for her. But, um, but at the end of the day, I'm going to become a lawyer and work in civil liberties law. So just learning to be independent in your own person, even though your family doesn't agree with you.
2: That's really, really powerful, Danielle. Did your family ever make directly racist remarks towards you?
1: From my understanding to my family, I'm not Mexican if that makes sense at all like even when I've tried to bring up these conversations in the past, like their understanding of how race and ethnicity and culture function is very black and white so i've never they've never made a direct comment at me but but the the thing is though is they've made. Plenty of remarks towards my dad's family, towards other Latinos, towards immigrants. Like it's, I I presume then they they take it that they don't have an issue saying all this really racist stuff in front of me. Cause I'm not, 'cause, cause to them I'm not. So therefore I should be okay with it. But I have expressed in the past that that's how I see myself. And it's very like insulting for you to talk this way yeah and and when you say racist remarks it's like how am I supposed to not be take like to not be offended by that
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I've kind of resided to myself that I just won't have these conversations or try to engage with them because it just has never gone over well in the past so I've kind of just reserved that when I see them a couple times a year I just let them be and put on a nice front. I feel sad for myself and I feel sad for them because on my dad's side of the family, I have a really strong relationship. Um, My dad is kind of a unique situation and is a prime example of internalized racism. But my uncles and my grandfather, my b I just have a type of relationship that I'll never have with my mom's family.
2: They really are missing out a lot by not having a relationship with you.
1: And I'm really sorry that they're super. Oh, my gosh. Mandy, it's okay. It's just kind of how it is sometimes. Mm Mm-hmm. You know.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So having that background with your own family, how do you feel with people marching in the street? for the future and people from other mixed families like that?
1: What I think about, I don't think about my mom's family. I I honestly, I think about my BIPA, my uncles and dad, and what my dad's family has had to sacrifice to be in this country. My grandfather only had a, he only had like a middle school education, and my great-grandmother never went to school. So for me to get that degree in ethnic studies for me to work in racial justice for me it's always it was never about my mother's family or or their desires like for me it has always been an extension of of the labor and the sacrifices made on my on behalf of my dad's family for me to be where i am now so i'm just paying that forward I know my situation is, is my own and that not all there are there are mixed race families that, that are really, obviously that are not the same and have really good dynamics. But I just hope for other mixed race families giving that mixed race student the, the space to to shine and and to to be who they are.
2: I just think, uh, Danielle, you're doing really, really excellent work. You're like the first person in your family to graduate from college, right? And you're doing Mm -hmm. such a bang-up job. Plus, you worked for the NAACP. Plus, you were working at the Knight Library. I was really lucky that we randomly found out we liked doing art and started hanging out outside of work. Then you're going to go to law school. And I think you're going to just make a really awesome impact on the world. Plus, I think you're a really amazing person. So thank you, Mandy. Well, Danielle, thank you so much. You're thank doing you, really Isabel. really amazing work, and I'm so happy that you were able to talk with me today.
1: No, oh, thank you so much for the opportunity to do so.
0: That was Danielle Bonilla, and we are Voices Up. This conversation was led by Isabel Amesqua and produced and edited by Carolyn Campbell and me, Kat Stein. Music is by Patrick Thomas. To stay up to date, follow us on Facebook at VoicesUp, Instagram at Voices.Up, and don't forget to subscribe to Voices Up wherever you listen to podcasts.